Welcome to the Podcast of the Hill. You are about to hear a message from Pastor Daniel Blaylock entitled Bread Basket from our series From Ashes to Easter. And this morning, this passage is uh, one of those things that help point us to the meaning behind all of this. It's in John chapter 6, if you have your Bible. I want to read just the first part of the story here today. John 6, it's a familiar story. It is the only miracle that I know of that is in all four Gospels. All four Gospels include this story. It was a very important story for the early church. They put a lot of emphasis on this story because there's a beautiful symbolism here, and I want to help you see it today. John chapter 6, hear the word of the Lord. And these things, Jesus... After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, say signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, say the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, say Passover, a feast of the Jews was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing the multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him. Say, test him. For he knew himself what he would do. Philip answered and said, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that everyone may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, But what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place. Now the men sat down in number about 5,000. So Jesus took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down and likewise of the fish as many as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world, say the prophet. Therefore when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. May God bless the reading of his word and his people said, Amen. Amen. I love this story. The background of this story is I had you say some key words with me, and I want to point out some things about them. And each of those words kind of give us a clue of the background, what's really happening in, in the story this morning. And you notice there with me that one of those words was Passover. Say Passover. The background of this story, it happens around the time of Passover. If you're new to the church, that may not mean a lot to you, but let me explain. If you were in Sunday school, you know immediately what that means. In the Old Testament, the Bible says that God's people were slaves in Egypt. And when they were slaves, God sent Moses to deliver them. God sent plagues. And after nine plagues did not work, God sent one final plague to really get the attention of the Egyptians. And the plague was this. He would pass through the land. The angel of death would pass through the land. And he would strike down the firstborn of both man and beast all throughout the land of Egypt. The only people who would be spared this judgment were those who had obeyed God's command and made good of God's provision. God's provision was this. You were to take a lamb without spot or blemish. You were to keep that lamb and you were to slay that lamb and you were to roast that lamb. You were to take the blood of that lamb and you were to strike it on the lintel, the top, the lintel, and the doorpost, the two sides of the house. 
makes the sign of a cross, doesn't it? The top and the two sides. They were to mark their house with the sign of the cross with the blood of a lamb. And not only were they were to have the blood on the outside, say on the outside, they were to have the lamb on the inside, say the inside. Not only were they marked on the outside, they were to eat the lamb. You had to take the lamb inside. You had to receive the lamb within you. And so you had a mark on the outside and you had the lamb on the inside. Amen? In case you don't know, that's what we did about 30 minutes ago in the service. We had some people who'd already received the lamb on the inside, amen, and we marked them on the outside, amen. And so they're marked, the blood and the lamb. They belong to Jesus, amen. Here they are, our new candidates who come through the waters of their baptism. Here this picture in Passover is, and so this is the season. God, after Passover, Egypt said, you can go. He, they let the people go. But then Pharaoh changed his mind. So the people come down to the Red Sea. Pharaoh chases after them. And God parts the Red Sea. So they go through the sea. Say through the sea. And then when they get out of the wilderness, God goes up on a mountain. Say on the mountain. And then from the top of that mountain where God sits with fire and smoke and cloud, he gives them his word. Say his word. Now follow along with me in this story. What did Jesus just do? The Bible says he took them across the Sea of Tiberias and he went up on a mountain and he gave them his word. What else did God do with them in the wilderness? He fed them manna from heaven. He fed them bread from heaven. What did Jesus do in the story? He fed them with miraculous bread. Do you get the picture? Do you see the setup? Do you see the story? This is what Jesus is doing. He, he knows that their heart and mind, they're thinking about Passover. They're remembering Moses and the Lamb. They're remembering the Red Sea parting. They're remembering going on the mountain, the Word, the bread. All of these things are in their collective memory. And Jesus takes this moment and reenacts this story so that they can get the point of who he really is. And many of them miss it, but the disciples get it. And I hope you'll get it too before we close our time together today. There are three Passovers in John. The first one is uh, where he predicts his death. He tells them in Jerusalem, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. That's the first Passover. That's in John 2. And then the last Passover, the third one, is when he actually lays down his life. John actually has, according to his calculation, Jesus giving his life on the day of the Passover. His timeline's a little different than Luke's and Mark's and Matthew's, but it's an interesting read to see the symbolism he's driving at. So Jesus giving his life, number one. This second Passover, he pictures the giving of his life by feeding them bread from heaven. He performs his sacrifice at the third one on the cross of Calvary. And that's the three Passovers in John. That's also why we assume that Jesus' ministry lasted about three and a half years because there's three Passovers. And if you count them in order, that'll give you the timeline of Jesus' ministry. But I want you to notice today, you see this here. This is the background. This is the backstory of what Jesus did and, and why he came. Amen? I want you to notice that. Look at the background here. Jesus takes them up across the sea on a mountain gives them his word, feeds them with bread, and it's around the time of Passover. Jesus said this. In verse 6, there's another key that this is what he's doing. I had you repeat the word tested. Say that again. Tested. Verse 6 says that Jesus asked him, Why are, how are we going to feed all these people? And the Bible says he said it to test them because he already knew what he intended to do. If you remember anything about Exodus, God tested his people. You remember that? 
Over and over, he tested them to see whether they would trust him or not. There would be a season with no food. There would be a season with no water. There was a moment where the water was there, but it was undrinkable. And they had to trust God. God brought water out of a rock on two occasions. God fed them with manna. They complained, so God sent them to quail. Over and over, God tested them to see if they would trust him or not. So Jesus is testing his disciples just like that story in the Old Testament. And so this is the scene. Now let's unpack it a little bit as we walk through today. I want to give you just four ideas that I think Four ways this passage just breaks down, and we'll move real quickly today. I want you to have a handle on all this good truth in God's Word today. Years ago, Yogi Berra went to his favorite pizza parlor after a game, and the waitress came out when he ordered his pizza and said, How would you? How would you like your pizza cut? I can cut it in six pieces or I can cut it in eight pieces. And he said, you better cut it in six pieces because I can't eat eight pieces. (laughs) So you could divide this passage a lot of ways, but most of you can't eat more than four points, so I'm going to keep it at four, okay? All right, are you ready? Say, I'm ready. Four manageable slices. Number one, notice the problem of the crowd. Say the problem. The problem of the crowd is they are hungry and they have no food, right? That's the problem here. Verses 8 and 9, one of his disciples, Simon Peter's brother, excuse me, let me back up. Verse 7, Philip answered him and said, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for every one of them that they may have a little. One denarius is a day's wages. 200 denarii means eight months worth of a working man's salary. In other words, Philip was saying, you could work eight months and not be able to pay for enough bread for everybody here just to get a mouthful, just a snack, not even to satisfy them, just to knock the edge off their hunger, Jesus. Many people are like uh, Philip in this passage, right? They look and they see the need and they immediately start calculating how much is it going to take to do that. Well, Jesus said, where will we buy bread for them? And he, Philip, is the, he's the treasurer, I guess. Well, actually, Judas was, but Philip is certainly on the, on the board, right? Because he immediately starts doing the math, Tony. You know, I, I've done the math on this pastor, and I just don't think it'll work. <laughs> Here he is, Philip. Lord, there's no way we can do this. This is impossible by human standards. And here they are. They have a deep problem. Philip points out the problem. Say the problem. But remember, all of this is a setup. It's a symbol for something deeper. Jesus didn't just come on the scene to feed their hungry bellies. He came to satisfy their empty souls. And the point of the story today is it is a lesson on salvation. It is a lesson on what Jesus really comes to do and give to us when we trust him and when we believe in him. And so the first thing you've got to get your head around is there is a problem that each of us have. Each of us, like the people in the story, have a spiritual problem. We are empty. We don't have what we need in order to maintain spiritual life. And many people completely underestimate their own spiritual need. Many people don't think that their sin is a big deal. Many people never come to the point where they grasp how deeply they need what only Jesus can supply. And the reason in our culture today you often don't get people saved is because you can't get them lost. You see, I pastor in the South, and that is a blessing and a bane all at the same time. Because anytime you ask someone, are you a Christian, they're going to say, yes, I'm a Christian. They may mean five different things by that. Some of them mean I drove by the church one time. (laughs) Yeah. Some of them mean my mom took me to church when I was a child and I was either baptized or dedicated to the Lord. And so I passed by the church in my infancy and that means that I'm a Christian. 
Some people, for them, that means they joined years ago and they haven't attended since. For other people, it means that they show up all the time and they may not have a personal relationship with Christ, but they're very involved in the busy activities, all the social things the church does. And then there are those who understand what it means and they say, I have trusted Jesus as Savior. He has come into my life and His Spirit has made me His own. And I know that my sins are forgiven and I know He lives with me and that I'm going to be with Him forever one day. And I'm enjoying the journey of walking and following Him with all the grace He gives me. You can mean a lot of things by that. Many people never grasp the enormity of their own sin. Sin is a big deal. Say it's a big deal. Isaiah 59 and 2, the prophet Isaiah tells the people, but your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Sin separates us from God. It cuts in between us and our relationship with Him. And so today, unless your sin has been dealt with at the cross, the Bible says you are separated from God. Well, I don't feel separated. Well, it doesn't matter what you feel. The Bible says it is a settled fact that you are cut off from God if you're, until your sins are dealt with. You are separated from Him. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. It's worse than that. Not only are you separated from God, the Bible says in Ephesians 2 that spiritually you are dead in your sins. Ephesians 2 says that God made us alive when we were dead in trespasses and sins. Say dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins, walking in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That's who we are. Oh, I think I'm a pretty good guy. The Bible says you are a child of wrath, a son of disobedience, and that the wrath and judgment of a righteous holy God is hanging over your head because of your sin. And the only way to escape his righteous, just judgment over your life is to settle out of court by running to the cross and asking Jesus to forgive you. That's what the Bible says. Amen. Your sins have separated you from God. We're dead in trespasses and sins. Our hearts are cut off from Him. Spiritually speaking, dead in the water. We don't just need a little help. We're not just a little turned around in need of direction. We are perishing souls on a sinking ship that is about to slip beneath the surface of the waves forever. We're not a little under the weather. We are and need a little medicine to recover our health. We're as graveyard dead as Lazarus on the fourth day and we need the Son of God to call our name and wake up our dead hearts and resurrect us so that we might live. That's what we need. We don't need a little help. We need saving by the grace and power of God. What we need is something we cannot provide. It's something we can't pull off. Salvation is not just a decision that you make. Oh, I have decided to follow Jesus. You do that after you get saved, amen? Yeah, you ought to follow Jesus. But I want to tell you, a dead man can't follow anybody anywhere. You won't walk very far until you're breathing. And the first step is you must be born again. Your dead heart must come alive. And you do that by trusting Jesus as Savior and repenting of your sin and inviting him into your life and asking him to give you a new heart. You must start up there at the beginning. Just as Jesus told Nicodemus, we stand in need of a new birth from above. And unless that supernatural work happens, we can't see or enter the kingdom of God. So there's the problem. Say the problem. The problem of the crowd and there's the poverty of the disciples. Not only do the people have a deep need, but even the disciples can't do anything about it. Can I tell you today, the church can't fix you. Well, why am I here then, Pastor? Oh, there's somebody here who can fix you, but it isn't me. 
And it isn't a life group leader, and it isn't a counselor, and it's not a Sunday school teacher, it's not a staff member, it's not any of us. There's someone in the house today who can heal you and change you and fix you and save you and make you all that you ought to be. But I want to tell you, I'm not that person. None of us that you've seen visibly are here, but he's in the room. Only the Lord Jesus can do that for you. Notice the the poverty of the disciples. Philip says it, Lord 200 denarii wouldn't fix this problem. We don't have the money to do this. And then listen when the next guy walks up. The Bible says in verse 8 and 9, Andrew comes up and says, Well, we have a little bit, but it's not going to go very far. There's a lad here with five barley loaves and two fish, but what is that among so many? Can I tell you today, that is what the church is like. People come to the church every week loaded down with needs loaded down with burdens and the cares of this life, saddled with addiction and bondage, lost and undone, away from God, their rope in knots. They walk into our life groups on Sunday morning. They sit around our living room tables on Sunday night in our growth groups. They come on Wednesday and come to Bible study classes that we lead and teach. And every week, those of us who lead look out into the faces who have needs that we know we cannot meet. Problems we know we cannot fix, and we often struggle. What do we say? What do we have to share? But I want to tell you today, you and I have to realize that we are impoverished. Five barley loaves and two fish. That's a Captain D's two-piece fish dinner right there, right? I mean, five little round biscuits and two pieces of two sardines, right? Here he is. That's all he's got to offer. The passage demonstrates the powerlessness of every witness, every Sunday school teacher and pastor and evangelist, apart from the work of God's own spirit. Everything that we do on Sunday or Wednesday here, we are dead in the water. It is powerless and impotent to help anybody unless the Spirit of God comes down and lays His hand on it and breathes on it and blesses it. Church isn't church until the Holy Spirit shows up. The preacher can't preach without the Holy Spirit. The choir can't lead us in unless the Holy Spirit is present to do that. We come and we believe that God meets with us when we come. And if God doesn't show up, we may as well not show up. None of us can do anything for each other. All we have is five loaves and two fish. We might be able to give you something to get through the physical, but we can't meet the deep need of your heart and life. But we're so thankful to announce today that there is one standing in the midst of us and his name is the Lord Jesus and the master is able to take our meager supply and multiply it to meet every need. Jesus is able and whatever you have need of today, he's here, he's present and he can meet your need but we're dependent on the Holy Spirit to show up and bless and give life. We used to sing an old song when I was growing up, brethren we have met to worship and adore the Lord our God. Will you pray with all your power while we try to preach the word? All is vain unless the spirit of the Holy One come down. Brethren pray and holy manna will be showered all around. We come expecting, worshiping, praying. Why? Because we believe that God can show up behind the choir and the spirit of God can speak through the preacher and the Lord can move around the altar and he can touch us and he can meet our need. Amen. 1 Corinthians 1.21 says, For since in wisdom, in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom didn't know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save them that believe. Hear me today. Nobody ever feels more powerless than a preacher. You don't know because you haven't done it. 
But there's nothing more powerless than standing in front of a room of people, preaching a message, knowing that you have nothing of your own power to be able to fix or heal anybody. You are absolutely dependent, right, Randy, on the Spirit of God to come and do the work. You see, you won't even hear what I say unless the Spirit of God wakes up your heart. You won't, you won't come unless the Spirit of God breathes on you and draws you unto salvation. You won't. You won't understand it unless the Spirit of God enlightens your darkened mind so that you can grasp the Word of God. Amen. Unless He lifts the chains of sin and darkness on your soul, you'll never come. Amen. Now, you still have to come. You still have to choose. You still have to respond to God's grace. He'll take every step but the last one, but that one's yours. You have to believe and obey the gospel. You have to repent and trust in Christ. That is your step alone. He'll enable and empower you to do it, but he won't do it for you. But today I want to tell you, every preacher knows we cannot effect the miracle today. Only God can do that. What miracle? The miracle of salvation. The miracle of you trusting Christ. The miracle of you becoming a new creature in Christ. Our strongest lessons, our most beautiful songs, our most vivid illustrations, our most compelling testimonies are powerless of themselves to effect the miracle. We offer all these meager efforts to like a boy handing Jesus his two-piece fish dinner and say, Jesus, what is this among so many? It's nothing to meet the need. It wouldn't scratch the surface, but Lord, I'm going to take it and I'm going to place it in your hands. And that's what happens when we come. And when we come, Jesus gets in the arrangement. And Jesus shows up in the service. And he blesses us in the singing. And he blesses us in the preaching. And he takes what is meager and he multiplies it and makes it more than enough to meet our need today. Amen? Amen. So we got the problem and we've got the poverty of the disciples. Jesus said in John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. We have the provision of the Master. Notice what Jesus does. The Bible says Jesus said, Make them sit down. There's much grass in the place. He sat down 5,000 men plus the women and children. Could have been 20,000, 25,000 there. We don't know. But Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down, likewise of the fish, as many as they wanted. So they were filled, and he said to the disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing be lost. The crowd's problem and the disciples' poverty met Christ's provision, his abundant supply on this day. Signs, this sign happened among them. This is another of the miraculous signs of Jesus. Say a sign. A sign is a miracle with a point. Jesus did a lot of miracles. He blessed and he healed and he touched people. But when John uses the word sign, he means that it's not just a miracle. It's not an end in itself. The sign is supposed to point you beyond itself. That's what a sign does. Amen? You know when you drive up to McDonald's, you don't drive up to the Golden Arches sign out front and walk up there and expect to get your food, right? No. The sign on the street points you back to the, where the building is, but you have to go to the building to get what you need. The miracles of Jesus are signs. They are there to point you back to God. They are to lead you back to Jesus. John Piper says it this way, when glory enters our world, when God does something miraculous, it's like a beam of sunlight landing on the earth. And the point is you are to follow the beam with your eye and let it lead you back to the source. The signs are to lead you back to God. The gifts are to lead you back to the giver. The miracle is to pull your heart back up in wonder to the miracle worker. And this is what Jesus does in hopes that they will not only see the sign, but they'll get the point 
They'll understand what the sign is pointing to. And so Jesus gives them an I am statement. There's seven of these in John, just like there's seven signs. This is the first one in John. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Say that with me. I am the bread of life. The crowd's problem met the provision of Jesus. It's a sacrament like baptism or communion. It's an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. The miracles are like that. They point to a deeper reality. Jesus said, verse 53, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Like the manna in the wilderness that they would have been thinking about in the story. Jesus is the only source of spiritual life for His people. But the question is, do they get it? Do they get the sign? Do they follow the sign to the point Some of them do, most of them don't. How do you know? Listen to what they say about Jesus. The final point today before we go. Notice the proclamation of the people. What do they say about the matter? We pick up the story in verse 14. The conclusion of the crowd is that he stands in the place of Moses. They watch Jesus feed them with miraculous bread, and he says, I am the bread of life. And they scratch their head, and they put all the pieces together, and they say, oh, wait a minute, we get it. You are the prophet who's replacing Moses. You're like Moses. You are the one who stands in the place of Moses. We get it. Verse 14, those men who had seen the sign that Jesus did said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world, say the prophet. That phrase, that little word, the prophet, with a capital P, is very important. They believed that by the end, God was going to send back a prophet like Moses, who did miracles like Moses, who was mighty like Moses, and that he would lead them into a new golden age. And so they believed Jesus is that prophet because of this miracle. It looks a lot like what happened in Moses' day, right? Jesus has recreated the scene. Oh, Jesus, we got it. We see the picture. You led us across the sea. You went up on a mountain. You gave us your word. You fed us with bread from heaven. You tested your disciples. You must be Moses. You're like Moses. You stand in the place of Moses. And Jesus scratches his head and says, Nope. Strike one. Try again. Sorry. Wrong answer. The correction of the Christ. The conclusion of the crowd, you stand in the place of Moses. But then Jesus corrects them. Verse 31 and 32. Listen to what he says. He says, no, I don't stand in the place of Moses. I stand in the place of God. Wait a minute. Jesus? Human Jesus? Joseph's boy? They even say that in the passage. Isn't this Joseph's kid? You are the son of God. You stand in the place of God. Look at verse 31 and 32. Our fathers ate manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. It wasn't Moses who led you out. It wasn't Moses who gave you his law. It wasn't Moses who rained manna down from heaven. It was God who led you out of Egypt. It was God who gave his Ten Commandments written with his own finger. It was God who parted the sea. It was God who gave water from a rock. And it was God who rained bread out of heaven. Not Moses. It was God. So if you want to know I don't stand in the place of Moses. Jesus said, I stand in the place of God. Don't miss the point of the sign. The sign is pointing back to who Jesus is. He is the bread of life. He is God 
come in the flesh. And don't miss the point. Jesus didn't come to give bread. Jesus came to be bread. You hear me? He didn't say, I came to give you the bread of life. He said, I am the bread of life. You don't need something that Jesus can give you. You need Jesus himself in your life. And when the Bible says that Jesus, when they came and they tried to make him king, he withdrew. Why? Let me explain before we go. They came and they saw Jesus feed the 5,000 with miraculous bread. And they said to themselves, wait a minute, this would be a perfect king. He could feed the army miraculously. He can heal the sick. He can raise the dead. He could heal those wounded in battle. And he could provide for the whole army with, with, with just meager resources. Surely this man ought to be the king. Why did they want Jesus to be king? Because look at all the stuff he can give us. Look at all the things he can do for us. And the Bible says when he heard that, that he withdrew from them and went off alone. Why? Jesus was not interested in those kinds of disciples. Jesus knew that they did not need all the stuff he could give them. What they needed most was not food in their belly. It was salvation in their heart. What they needed most was not for him to provide some physical miracle, but to do the miracle of the new birth in their hearts. That's what they needed. They didn't need bread to fill their bellies. They needed Jesus, the bread of life, to give life to their dead spirits. They needed Jesus to forgive their sins so they could be right with God. They needed Jesus to do that. Well, most of the people in the crowd missed it that day. But Jesus gives the disciples one more sneak peek so they can get it right. Right after this miracle is another miracle. Right after this fourth sign is a fifth one, and only the disciples see it. They're out in a boat, and the Bible says that they're trying to get across the water, and that Jesus comes walking on the water and the waves and gets in the boat with them, and immediately the boat's on the other side, and the storm is calm, and they get out on dry land. What happens to them? Jesus comes walking on the wind and riding on the waves and gets in the boat with them. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you know that there is only one person in the Old Testament who rides king of the flood. There's only one who controls the wind. There's only one who can walk on the waves. And that one is Yahweh, Jehovah God, the Lord of hosts, the one who made the heavens and the earth. And when Jesus comes walking on the waves and standing on the wind and gets in the boat with them, they fall on their knees because they know, they know who he really is in that moment. You are the son of the living God. Only God can do that. And they got the picture. They got the point of the sign. Jesus is not a prophet. He's not just Messiah. He is those things, but he's so much more. He's not just the one who replaces Moses. No, he's the living bread that comes down from heaven. He's the only one who can meet the deep need of your heart and life. And that deep need is for you to be saved, for your sin to be forgiven, for your dead heart to come alive in God. Many people come to Jesus because they want their physical need met. Every week I see people who come to church or come to my office for counseling or they come to a life group meeting. And, and what they really need is they've got their rope in knots. They've got some area of their life's in a mess and they want Jesus to fix that problem for them. I'm not telling you that Jesus won't do that. Jesus will help you. Jesus longs to, to meet needs. He's compassionate. He cares about your needs. But I want to tell you if he does that, it is always in order that that need, that miracle, that answer to prayer might point you back to something deeper and something fuller. The Bible says when Jesus healed the sick that they rose and followed him because they realized when he met their need who he was. I want to ask you today, many of you come 
and you may have a need, I want to ask you today, what would happen if Jesus met that need? What would be your response if God answered your prayer? Would you just say thank you and disappear for the next six months or two years? I can't tell you how often I see that as a pastor. Somebody comes, they come and they pray, they get a Band-Aid, God gives them some relief, God gets them out of the tight that they're in, God answers the prayer, and then they go out the back door and you don't see them anymore for years. You see them when they get in a mess again, and then they come back again, and they come. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're here today and you've had multiple trips, but it's never stuck. It's never taken. Because the problem is you saw the miracle, but you missed the sign. God met the physical need, but you never allowed the process to go deeper. You didn't follow the answer back to the one who gave it. You didn't follow the sign back to the sign giver. The point today is this, not can Jesus meet your need, not can he feed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, not is he more than enough, not can he give you financial breakthrough and healing for your body, that's wonderful. He can do all of that and he often does. But the deeper question this morning is this, how is it with your soul? Do you have the life of God in your soul or are you dead in your sins or have your sins cut you off from God? Are you separated from him today? Is your heart right with God? You see, Jesus fed them that day, and by dark, they were hungry again. He can heal your body, but one day, something's going to take you out of this world. You hear me? He can meet and answer a need. He can meet your need and answer prayer. But you know what? In a few days, you'll have another need, and you'll need to come back again. Jesus will help you all through life, but Jesus has one great gift he wants to give you that you simply cannot afford to do without. And that is the gift of eternal salvation. The gift of eternal life. Have you ever received that gift? Have you unpackaged that gift? Have you invited Jesus to come in? Have you tasted the bread of life? Have you allowed Christ to give you the miracle of the new birth? Stand with me all over the house. Pastor Chad, come help me this morning. Surely anyone... In order to have eternal life, we must believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, the bread from heaven. And Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. What on earth does that mean, Pastor? Just like in the story of the Passover lamb, they had to eat the lamb. They had to receive it. It had to be inside of them. You have to receive Jesus into your heart and life by trusting him and inviting him in. Jesus said in Revelation 3 and 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come inside of him and I will dine with him and he with me. Have you opened the door to Jesus? Have you invited Christ to come in and save you? Have you responded to his invitation? You may be in the room today and say, well, pastor, I was raised in a very different tradition and I thought that what Jesus meant was we are to eat the bread of the, of the mass. We are to come and that's talking about communion. I would push back at that a little bit. I certainly believe that communion is a symbol of what we're talking about. But you can have the symbol and lack the substance. You can have the symbol and lack the reality. First of all, Jesus wasn't talking about communion in this passage. That's is John 6. That didn't happen until John 19. John 13, excuse me. That's much later in the book. John's the only one, by the way, who actually doesn't even record the communion meal. So I really doubt that's what he's talking about. He doesn't make a lot of that in his gospel. Many people would say, well, you know, I believe the sacrifice is repeated 
on the altar when the priest offers the bread and the wine. And so we come over and over and receive that. No, friend, hear what the writer of Hebrews says. By God's will, we have been saved through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Say that with me. Once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, say this man, after he had offered one sacrifice, say one, for sins forever, say forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, say one offering, he has perfected forever, say forever, those who are being sanctified. Friend, you don't need a ritual. You need an encounter with the living Christ. You need to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You need by faith to trust in Him, to surrender your heart to Him, to come to the cross and say, Lord, I believe when you died, you died for me. I believe my sins were nailed to your cross. And Lord, I'm trusting you and I'm asking you, forgive me, come into my life and save me. Give me a new heart. Wake up my dead spirit. Remove the things that disconnect me from God. Bring me back into relationship with yourself. And I want to tell you, if you'll do that, he'll satisfy your heart. He'll do something in you you'll never get over. And he'll help you with all the other stuff too. But don't miss the point. The point of coming today is not for God to get you out of your current crisis. Will God help you with your current crisis? I don't doubt that he will. But don't just go from crisis to crisis today. You need a relationship with God that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm asking you today, do you have that? Are you born again? Are you a Christian? Have you given your heart to Jesus? I want to tell you, I don't apologize. Pastor, you've been preaching this for weeks. I don't know anything to preach but the gospel. I don't know anything better to preach than the gospel. Paul said, I wouldn't know anything among you except Jesus and Him crucified. You can't move any deeper until you get this part right. Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Have you trusted Him as Savior? Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're here today and you say, Pastor, I'm not a believer. I've never given my heart to the Lord. There's never been a moment for me when I came and professed publicly that I had trusted Christ as my own. There's never been a moment when you've confessed your sins and asked God to forgive you. If there's never been a moment when you have felt and known that the grace of God met you and your dead heart came alive and the chains of sin broke off you and the weight of guilt and shame was rolled away from your life. If you've never had a moment like that, you can. You can. You can have it this morning. You can come and taste the bread of life. You can come receive the life of God in your soul. What are you waiting on? What are you waiting on? Jesus says, come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast him out. Pastor, what do I have to do? You got to come to Jesus. Jesus said, Whoever comes to me will have life. You got to believe in Jesus. Amen. Trust in him. He said, Whoever believes on me is passed from death to life, and the wrath of God no longer abides on him. He said, To those who believe on the Son of God, he gave the right to become the children of God. To as many as receive him, receive Jesus today. If you're here today and your heart's not right with God, I want to invite you to come. I want to invite you to come. Some of you have held your hand up for weeks now and you've waited. What are you waiting on? It's time. Today is the day of salvation and now is the accepted time. Don't wait. Don't tarry. Don't put it off. Oh, pastor, I can do it later. You don't know that you can do it later. Right now, you're in the presence of God. Right now, the Spirit of God is speaking through the Word of God. Right now, your heart is stirred to think on Jesus.
This afternoon, you'll be thinking of a thousand other things. Don't miss your moment. Jesus is passing by. He's calling you to salvation. Trust Jesus this morning. Trust Him this morning. You come while we sing. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you will do the miracle that I am unable to do, that you will take this meager offering of a sermon and you will bless it and you will cause it to be multiplied bread, Lord, for people in this room who need you. Lord, I pray that your spirit will come and move among us. I pray that you will draw to salvation those who don't know you and are not right with you and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. As we sing, you come. Don't wait. Don't tarry. Someone will meet you here. Come receive Jesus. Come trust in Christ. Come and be saved from your sin. Come now. Come now. Some of you have a neighbor. You ought to look at your neighbor and say, neighbor, do you need to go pray? I'll go. Thank you for listening to our podcast at The Hill. We pray that you are blessed by this message. For more information on what's happening at The Hill and to stay connected, visit our website at foresthillcog.org. Join our Facebook page, facebook.com slash or download our app from the iTunes or Google Play Store.